Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. The reading this morning comes from Joel chapter 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people, traded boys for prostitutes, sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions, all your regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I've done? Are you paying me back? I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver, my gold, and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far away from their homeland. See, I'm going to rouse them out of their palaces, out of their places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side. And assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full. And the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, for the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed their innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Peter, thank you for that reading. Uh, A slightly longer one today, but I thought it'd be great as we finish off, Joel, that we've actually read the whole book together uh, over these last four weeks. 
How have you found it? Have you been enjoying Joel? Many of you have said to me, yeah, I've read through the whole book, perhaps for the first time. Uh, and, and I think people are, we're getting into it. It's been great. Uh, it's also great to see people with notepads and getting their phones out. Now's the time as we become a group of people who engage with what God says to get those out, your notepads, your phones, so that we can actually listen to what God's saying and, and be active in that rather than passive. Now, this morning, I want to start like this. I want to talk about a movie that this year is 20 years old. It's The Matrix. Now, some of you will love The Matrix, some of you will hate The Matrix, but I'm going to use The Matrix this morning. Uh, It's a movie, and I don't think I'm spoiling too much for anybody because it's 20 years old, so if you haven't seen it, you know, go and see it. But uh, it's a movie where people uh, are living in a sort of a post-apocalyptic world. And in this world, most people are actually just their bodies are in kind of a little cell of some sort of fluid that keeps them alive. But their minds are plugged into the matrix. Their minds are plugged into an alternate reality. And the movie sort of portrays that what we see now living in normal day-to-day life is kind of one reality, but it's a virtual one. And then the other actual physical reality is where most people are just sort of in this stasis, surviving as the machines of the matrix keep them alive. But there are a handful of people who've managed to be unplugged from the matrix and they're able to sort of be in the real world, real, real world, and also plug into the matrix. And there's a character called Cypher in this movie, uh, known as Cypher, or also in The Matrix, he's known as Mr. Reagan. And Cypher has been unplugged for nine years. So he's had this experience of being in the real world and understanding the challenge of humanity to try and beat the, the machines. And he also knows what it's like to be in The Matrix, which is this virtual space. And we're going to watch a clip in a second of where Cypher has kind of come to a decision about how he's going to handle these two different realities, how he's going to approach these two different realities. So let's, let's have a little look at this short clip. Do we have a deal, Mr. Reagan? You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth... The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing. You understand? And I want to be rich. You know, someone important. Like an actor. Whatever you want, Mr. Reagan. Nice little bit of humour there, Mr. Reagan becoming an actor, etc., etc. Quite like that clip. So uh, how on earth does this relate to Joel, you might ask? Well, today we are focusing on the day of the Lord. So we've spent time looking at Joel as an overview. We've looked at a couple of deep dives into what Joel's saying. This morning, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, that is, throughout Joel. 
And as I started thinking about this and preparing for it, I thought, you know, being around Christianity for a while, there, there are kind of two realities that sometimes I've felt across the years of, of being a Christian. And the first one is this. The first one is, I'm going to call it love and forgiveness. The first reality is this place where we're focused on the positive stuff. God is love. God loves each one of us. He cares for each of us. In fact, he particularly cares for the prostitutes and the tax collectors, people who have done bad things. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. All of our sin is forgiven and it's about hope and healing in heaven. That's one reality of sort of Christianity. But there's another one. Now, maybe it's a little bit older school, but it's certainly around. And I'm going to call this one fire and brimstone. You might have heard of this one. Now, this reality that we hear about in Christian circles about God, uh, that's a little bit more along the lines of we are all sinners and sin must be punished. God hates sin and will eradicate it. It will be judged. God detests the wicked and one day it will all be destroyed. That's the fire and brimstone model. Now, I'm painting these things fairly starkly. Love and forgiveness. Fire and brimstone over here. And I thought with that in mind, we approach Joel's idea of the day of the Lord. And I wanted to see what can we learn from Joel in this this idea of the day of the Lord about those things and how they work together. And we will come back to Cypher. What is the day of the Lord? Why don't we answer that question first? What is the day of the Lord? Well, it's had different meanings across history. The Israelites leaving Egypt experienced a day of the Lord. And, And for them, it was the time where the angel of death came and killed firstborns across Egypt. But not if you were an Israelite who had taken the blood of a lamb and painted it on your doorpost. In that case, you were passed over. And and you might know that story where the Israelites came out of Egypt in the Exodus. God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh and the Israelites were saved by God. So the day of the Lord for the Israelites, they celebrated in in the feast of the Passover was this time where God had come and had saved them. It was a wonderful thing. So for hundreds of years for the Israelites, if you had said to them, the day of the Lord, they'd have gone, woohoo, that was the time we were saved. It's awesome. But things changed. And if we fast forward a few centuries, we start to see this phrase, the day of the Lord used in a different way. So if we read in Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah 13, chapters 9 to 10. So this is many, many years after the Exodus. And Isaiah is prophesying to God's people who have been in this promised land for a long time. He says this, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's a different day of the Lord. And that's actually matched in Joel. Joel refers to this day of the Lord three times, once in each chapter. So let's quickly read each of those references. Chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction for the Almighty. 
chapter 2, verse 31. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, that Peter read for us this morning. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. Perhaps though you're thinking, well, that's an Old Testament thing. What does the New Testament say about the day of the Lord? Well, let's have a look. Jesus refers to it. Mark chapter 13, verse 8. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And then Jesus goes on a few verses later to say, in those days and following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Paul also refers to it in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, saying, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament multiple references after the Exodus to a day of the Lord that is dark. And, and wrathful and, and a great day of judgment where God's actions come against injustice. It's a day of great desolation and destruction and interesting constantly references to the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon being darkened. And we've seen all of those things in Joel. So it seems consistent that that's what the day of the Lord is. It's this day where justice comes where God's wrath is poured out. And there's also something going on in the heavenly realm. Why is there a day of the Lord? Let's talk about that. Why, why is there a day of the Lord? Now, when we think about what happened in the, with the Israelites, we see that God was pouring out his wrath on people who had walked away from him. So what was happening there was Pharaoh was saying, I'm not going to let your people go. There was injustice being done to God's people in Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said, God says, please let the people go. And they didn't. And so ultimately the day of the Lord came where God's wrath is poured out on the sin of the nation of Israel and on Pharaoh. The prophets make it clear that the people of God hundreds of years later have also started to disobey God. And what we read across the prophets is that they are both being unfaithful to God, but they're also not interacting in the way God's asked them to. We see frequent references to oppression of the poor, not looking after the widows and the orphans, but also to worshipping gods that are not God. So we see all of these things and these are the warnings and these are the reasons why this day of the Lord's coming. There's been disobedience. Now, I processed that a little bit as I was preparing, and I thought, well, I think we can get our minds around that. I think most of us would say we're pretty happy that we've got law courts. We're pretty happy with this idea that there's a, there's a law, and you know what? If you break the law, there's a consequence. And depending on how significant it is, yeah, I, think, I think we're all okay with that. But where we get uncomfortable, I think, is where we start thinking about this idea of God's wrath actually coming on people. And then we get a little bit more squirmy because we start to think, you know what? 
I, I, pretty much everyone's good enough. I, everyone around me would be good enough. I mean, we're all at church. Surely we're all good enough, right? And, and my relatives, well, they're kind of, well, I mean, they're good, pretty good people. And we start to get uncomfortable with where is this line going to be drawn on this, the why of the day of the Lord and the wrath being poured out. We've got this distinct discomfort in society, in thinking Christian mindset, about what actually doesn't qualify to be good enough to be okay. We watch TV programs, like if you've seen The Good Place, and there's this clear weighing up in that program of have you done enough good versus bad? In Joel's writing, it's interesting. Joel, for in chapter 2, he doesn't specify what God's people have done wrong so that the day of the Lord's coming. He just says, repent. And last week, if you were here, Dave Scave did a tremendous job of sharing with us that God, God's, in Joel, what we hear is God says, repent. And what's really important is that we repent together and also the importance, the priority of repentance. But Joel doesn't say to the people, like many other prophets do, here's what you did wrong. When we get to chapter 3, however, and Joel starts talking about a day of the Lord for the nations, then we see there is something specified. And, and Peter read that, but let's just recap. Here's what was said. I will, this is God saying to the nations, I will punish them for what they have done to my people Israel. And, and as we read that, God goes on to outline that the nations are going to be punished because they've taken God's stuff. They've, they've taken his people. They've taken some of his land. They've taken his things. But he also has this great direct quote about their attitude. He says, are you trying to get even with me? You know, as if that were even a thing. Chapter three, verse four, are you, are you trying to get even with me? Because that's just not gonna work. And as we go through that passage, as the day of the Lord's coming on the nations, what we get a clear picture of is that the reason for it is because of the heart attitude of the nations towards God. And we see the same thing in the prophets throughout the rest of the Bible about God's people. It's our heart attitude and relationship with God that needs to be right. So that's the why. Why does the day of the Lord come? Because our heart attitude is not right. Because of things called sin where we disobey. Now we're going through the basics, the what, the why. How about the when? When is this day of the Lord? Has it been or is it coming? Well, Joel seems to suggest there's more than one. Joel seems to suggest there's more than one. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago where Joel starts with this disastrous locust attack. And he says, you know, people in my community, this was awful. But... It's, it's a bit of a, a warning that what's about to come, in other words, for his community several thousand years ago, something's about to come called the day of the Lord. But then Joel, in chapter three, what we read this morning, is talking about something in his distant future. He's talking about this future day of the Lord where all the nations are brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, as far as I could read and, and glean, there is no valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, no one's found that archaeologically. But the word Jehoshaphat actually means God judges. So it's a metaphorical valley where the nations are going to be brought. And Joel also uses the expression that it's a valley of decision. And he says, as the sun and moon are darkened, the nations will become desolate. Why? For the violence done to the people of Judah. 
Now, again, there are references in the New Testament. So we're thinking about the when. Joel says there's one for our community that was about to happen and there's one in the distant future. Jesus says this in Mark 13. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven know. The son doesn't know, only the father knows. So when Jesus is talking about the future day of the Lord, he says, actually, only God knows. But he says, keep watch, stay awake. You don't know when that time will come. And for those of you who are fans of uh, this sort of end time stuff, of course, the book of Revelation paints a picture of some of the things that will happen at the end on this big day of the Lord. So Joel shares the idea that maybe there are multiple days of the Lord, that there will be a final one, but there are also other days of the Lord that can occur through history. And we've heard that the Israelites experienced a day of the Lord. So when is the day of the Lord? Well, there are multiple days of the Lord that sort of foreshadow an ultimate day of the Lord. But it is really clear as we read in Joel that this day of the Lord is about justice coming for injustice. It's, it's going to be catastrophic and, and bring desolation and destruction. This ultimate day of the Lord particularly will be the end of all sin. So let's go back to our question. There are two types of views you can have about Christianity. So far, Joel seems to be pretty much on the fire and brimstone side, doesn't he? All we've talked about in this idea of the day of the Lord is is, there's bad things coming for people who are disobedient. Sin will be destroyed. It's, It's going to be not a very good experience. But I wanted to make sure that we read all of Joel because Joel counterbalances. And I hope that you've even picked that up from the reading this morning. Joel does not say it's just fire and brimstone. In chapter 2, God gets rid of the attacking army. So you might remember this. There's an army coming from the north. It's destroying everything before it. But before it gets to his people, God gets rid of the army. And he says, fear not. And he restores any devastation that's already occurred. In essence, he rescues his people. In chapter 3 that we just read, after describing the ultimate day of the Lord and the judgment of the nations, Joel goes on with something. So let's, let's read this piece in, chap- in verse 16. It starts off with, The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and heavens will tremble. Fire and brimstone. But then he goes on. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. So what we see is that judgment's going to take place and God is providing refuge for his people. More than that, when we read the description, for instance, in uh, verse 18, it seems like this this restoration is, is a little bit like the promised land. So you remember a phrase that was used for the promised land? Milk and honey. Well, what do we read here about this restoration that's coming for the people of God after the day of destruction in verse 18. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Arcasius. Sounds like this beautiful picture of of restoration back to what God originally designed for his people. So my conclusion is that Joel's picture is actually not matrix-like. 
my conclusion is there's not two realities that we have to choose from when we think about God and when we think about what is coming and what has been. Both are true and both are really important. We have seen through Joel that the idea that something terrible is coming for people who aren't in relationship with God, that was a catalyst for people to repent and get into right relationship with God. But equally, there's a beautiful picture of what God wants for the people that he loves that we can run towards as we repent. Joel shares that God hates injustice and sin. He says it's going to be judged and in the end, it will, sin will be defeated. He says God's faithful and loving and a refuge for his people. Now, that kind of sounds good. And it's easy for me to say, but as I was thinking about that, I thought, how does that make sense? How can there be this one side and this other side and they're both true? How does that get brought together? I hope you know the answer, but here's what Joel points to. In chapter 2, verse 32, here's how Joel brings it together. He says, It shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries in the last few weeks about Joel. And it is striking to me that this idea of how do you bring these together is often the opening paragraph of the introduction or, and or the closing conclusion of these commentaries. And I want to read to you just a sentence from one of them that sums it up. This is by a lady called Elizabeth Uchtermeyer. And she says, The prophecies of Joel... They set forth the very heart of the gospel that found its embodiment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How do these things fit together? They fit together in Jesus. They fit together in what Jesus did. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus' death and resurrection was a day of the Lord. And why would I suggest that? Well, it's a day on which sin was punished. Desolation and destruction for the innocent son of God as he carried the sins of the world on the cross. And the other clue is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. So on the day that Jesus died, what was happening in the heavens? Matthew 27, 45 says this, the whole land was covered in darkness. The sun and the moon, they went dark. This was a day of the Lord. And through this day of the Lord, we see not only the, the fire and brimstone piece, this, the death and destruction, but of course that day brought in restoration for us, refuge for us. Jesus ushered us into new life by his death and his resurrection. And, and through it, we see God's compassion and grace and forgiveness. The fact that he is slow to anger. So in Joel, this idea that there's a day of the Lord that was, but it foreshadows an ultimate one coming. We see in Jesus' death and resurrection, where he ushered in this new phase of history, where the kingdom of God is here with us now, but it's not yet fully complete. And that will happen when he comes back, which is associated with the final day of the Lord. We've spent four weeks in Joel, four weeks together looking at an uh, overview of Joel, the fact that he was steeped in scripture of his time. 
and that it's really important for us to understand God's word so we can read our circumstances. We looked at the fact that Joel was a prophet and, and that he took some of the things that had happened and we see them fulfilled in what Joel's saying, but we also see Joel setting out some of God's syllabus for what's coming. Last week, as we've mentioned, we saw Joel talk about, uh, Dave talk about, Joel talking about the importance of repentance and turning to God. And this week, it, it comes together because this day of the Lord, this central feature of Joel's book, as we go through each chapter, it's there. And it brings together this two different perspectives of a God. How can God hate sin but love us even though we're sinners? Brings it all together through Jesus Christ. At the end of this book, we arrive at the cross. And so how fitting this morning that we celebrate communion. All of the Bible points to the cross. And our whole four weeks have been leading up to this point where we're going to spend some time together celebrating what Jesus has done. Celebrating the fact that his death and resurrection ushered in new life for us. Did Jesus know that his death was a day of the Lord? Well, well it appears that he did. As he was talking to his followers the night before he died, he, he said, you know what, my blood is going to be poured out to forgive the sins of many. He knew that justice was coming through his death. And that's the instruction that he gave. And we also know that he's going to return because we read, as we read about this communion celebration that the early church had, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's talking about what we're about to do. He's talking about celebrating communion. He said, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death this first day of the Lord, until he comes again. That's the end times. So in this time together, what I'm going to ask you to do is just take time to reflect. Take time to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for us. Take time to reflect on the fact that he is coming again. Weigh the gravity of the fire and brimstone that we've been wading through as we think about the day of the Lord, along with the beauty of the restoration that he's brought to your life, if you know him, and that he continues to offer all of us. Now, if you're visiting or you're new to Kerry, if you would like to be in relationship with Jesus, we would love to invite you to be part of the communion table. Everybody is welcome. And what we'll do in a moment is we'll, we'll stand up and we'll go and take a piece of bread and, and the cup and we've got gluten-free options there as well. And then come back and sit down and we'll do all of that in a reflective way to just soak in what God has been doing and saying to you and to me. And then when we're all back together, we're going to do this together because it's good to do it as a family where we'll take the cup and we'll drink the bread. I'll, I'll give thanks, I'll lead us in that. Then we'll take the cup and take the bread. So can I invite you now to stay seated for a moment if you would like to. But then as you feel led, there's, uh, there's stations on both sides. And then come back and sit down and we will pray together.